attention. Do not be disturbed. You are now leaving reality and entering midnight social distortion. Welcome back to another edition of Midnight Social Distortion. I am your host, Marco Estes. And this time I'm going to try to do something sort of different, but not really different. Um, As of late, I've realized that my entire first season of the podcast has been mainly dealing with stuff that have made me the person I am today, you know, ranging from, you know, horror to pop culture to various other things in between. I decided to dub this season Foundations, and I'm going to try to stick with that. I know a lot of people have been asking about if I will have guests on soon. They are coming. Um, um Taymon Kane was the first test with that. I just needed somebody here to be with me for the um Helen Shivers memorial service and I couldn't think of anybody better than Taymon. Um so but I'm thinking about keeping it solo so far for the season and then if not towards the end of the season or maybe start off second season as being like completely guest oriented to talk about things that I share with certain people across the um, fandom. So, yeah. But Foundations is pretty much the theme of this entire season. And I can't think of venturing into another part of what made me a horror fan today than taking a journey down Elm Street. Now, anybody who knows me knows how big of a Fred head I am. I am not going to sit here and claim that I am the biggest Fred head, um, but I consider myself a hardcore Fred head. Now, I go hard for Freddy. Um, I go hard for the Elm Street franchise. Uh, I will fight anybody when it comes down to certain aspects of the franchise of people like maybe trash certain sequels um I, I i i get a little defensive for the franchise because it was a big part of me growing up and in this episode i'm going to delve into why as a matter of fact the next three episodes are going to be considered a trilogy of sorts called the M- my elm street journey today we're going to be doing volume one which is going to cover solely the movies and the chrono- um, the chronology and timeline for all the movies, the characters and events and whatnot. The second episode is going to be focused solely on Freddy's nightmares and where I personally feel that the series should fit within the main narrative of the main Elm Street narrative. And I will give um, my supporting arguments as to why it should not be considered an offshoot and taking place in a whole different, you know, universe and or is not canonical. Um, so that's going to be episode two of this trilogy. And the final episode is going to be the fandom. Pretty much the uh, ancillary content maybe discuss 
Never Sleep Again, um, the Black Flame novels, the young adult novels that came out back in the day, the comic storylines and the figures, and maybe some rumors about certain possibly made movies or whatnot that they was that they had considered at one time. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much what this Elm Street Journey trilogy is going to consist of. I am very nervous, as I am with most stuff when it comes to this podcast, about getting this right because when it comes to Elm Street, I just don't know. It's like most podcasts, most horror podcasts, mind you, have tackled a Nightmare Elm Street. Some have went in 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 depth. Like each episode will probably cover one movie and that episode maybe be an hour 30 minutes long and and there's nine films plus a television series and so i guess coming approaching this topic my thing was what do i have to offer that other podcasts or websites wikis or anything else have to offer about elm street and you know Never Sleep Again is pretty much the, the definitive documentary about the Elm Street series. And you kind of get a lot of tidbits that you probably wouldn't find anywhere else. But there's so much stuff out there that is still yet to be uncovered and other stuff that people probably debate over and whatnot when it comes to Elm Street. But for me, my approach to this was to try to find something unique, something that you couldn't find anywhere else. And I just didn't want to sound like I was regurgitating facts that not only Fred heads know, but most of horror fandom knows already. And I just wanted to give something new. And I this might be a cop out to a lot of people, but I do have a unique perspective on the franchise as a whole. I know certain people tend to like shun their nose down to anything past dream warriors and that's their prerogative um but me i tend to look at the first eight films and not the remake the remake is a redheaded stepchild to me but i tend to look at the first eight films the original six films then new nightmare and freddy versus jason as they're like my children i don't like to favor one over the other one i just think that they all have their own unique qualities that bring something to the overall mythology of freddy krueger spring with ohio and whatnot so and it just takes a little bit of imagination to fill in the pieces in between all of that so that's what i'm trying to do with this trilogy within a podcast so before we get started, because this is going to be a super edition episode, a super chiller episode, quoting like Fear Street um, stuff. And I, because I'm going to cover all nine movies. Yes, I'm even going to talk about the um, remake. But mostly, I'm not going to go beat by beat with each you know, scene of the movie, of each movie. Um, I'm just going to go and just pick out things that probably stuck out to me in a way that I had to speak on it. I might throw in a few tidbits of people who probably didn't even know about certain things because true, <clears throat> there are some people out there who are probably not familiar with other 
other websites or other podcasts rather that have went and did a deep dive on the Elm Street series or just aficionados just like I am, but they pretty much are like their own curators of all things Elm Street. So I will be shouting some of those people out if I can remember to do so. But yeah, I will be taking my time going through each movie, um, pointing out aspects of it that interested me and reasons why it should be, you know, considered a watch. I mean, I'll, all eight movies and even the remake should get at least one watch. You should at least watch each of them once. And I will round it back up at the end of the episode. But for now, I'm going to, like I said, break them all down, give you my tidbits that I felt are like, you know, interesting to talk about and correlate each film in a point in my life where it kind of resonated with me. Because I'm not going to lie, I watched all these movies out of order. And then when I got to be like a preteen, maybe like, you know, about 13, 14 years old, I just went back and made sure to watch all of them in order. And every time I'd have a marathon of each one, it a certain movie would probably bring something out or would stick out at a specific time in my life that, you know, resonated with me at the moment, at that moment. So... First, let's just go ahead and take a break before I jump into the prelog, the prelog, the prologue of my journey down Elm Street. So be right back. Okay, y'all, we're back. Uh, so let's just go ahead and start off with my first time ever coming across Freddy Krueger. I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before. I probably have, but I know that when I do guest on certain podcasts, I do tell the story of pretty much my first time meeting Freddy in a sense, but basically my first time experiencing fear that I, that stuck with me. Um, Basically, I was about three or four years old. My parents were trying to get, trying to bed train me. And Lord knows it probably was younger than that. But I know that they were trying to bed train me because my mom always reminded me of this. And it was my first time being in my bedroom. So my mom put me to bed that night. And as I was sleeping, you know, she turned off the light. I don't think they, they could even afford a night light for me. It was just like, you know, I think she just left the door open a crack just to have a little bit of light in there coming in for me to be, you know, okay. But I heard my mom laugh as I was laying down trying to go to sleep. And I'm like, what is she laughing at? And you know, most kids tend to, especially at that age, they love the sound of their parents' laughter and whatnot. It's like this thing that draws them to them and stuff. So I get out of the bed, decide to go see what my mom's laughing at. So I go in the living room and she's on the couch just howling, laughing. And I turn around, look at the TV screen, and there is this guy in the alleyway with this hat on, this fedora hat, and he has these long arms. And one of the arms have knives for fingers. And so the scene when the the moment when Tina's like, Dear God, and Freddie's like, This is God. 
when Tina ran, I bolted because my mom didn't notice that I had walked into the room. And so when I ran screaming, she was like, oh, baby, baby, it's fake. It's fake. It's not real. It's not real. But you can tell a three or four year old kid that this thing isn't real. You know what I'm saying? So that was the first time I had ever came across Freddy Krueger. And from that moment on, I was terrified of him. I mean, completely terrified of him. And then this was probably like, if I was three or four, this had to been like 86. Um, as a matter of fact, it probably wasn't even 86. It was probably 85, given the fact that my sister wasn't born until 86, summer of 86. So and it was only me and my mom inside the house at the time. So well, my, my dad was at work, of course, but I'm just saying that my, we're the only two people inside the house at that, at that moment. So... So it's probably only like the first two Elm Street movies that were out. So when my cousins, we started going around my cousins a whole lot more. This is around the time that Freddy's Nightmares had came out. So this was like post Dream Warriors, which I didn't even know anything about. Uh, all I knew was just the original Nightmare Elm Street movie. And my cousins would use like stuff like Tales from the Dark Side, Monsters, and even some episodes of Twilight Zone to scare the complete crap out of me. So I wasn't a, I was, they knew that if I, if they wanted to scare me, just put on a hard television show or just do some gross, grotesque, like, you know, pulling your eyelids over your, um, pulling that, you know, turning your eyelids inside out, excuse me. Something like that would just freak me out. So I remember staying outside in the hallway the entire night while my cousins were in another room watching Freddy's Nightmares. And then I think they eventually turned to, I think in HB, I think HBO or Cinemax or something, and one of the Elm Street movies was on as well. So I just sat in the hall with the entire night, scared to go in there. And my parents was like, "Why won't you go in the room with your cousins?" I'm like, "They're watching Freddy." And they're like, "Who's Freddy?" And then so my mom was like, "Oh, that's the, the the killer." And I was like, "Yeah." So yeah, it was pretty bad for a long time, but yeah, Freddy Krueger has pretty much been the signifier of fear for me ever since I was a kid. So it took a lot for me to get over that, like walking into a video store and going into the horror section by mistake, I would come across his face and maybe some other faces on, you know, um, movie covers, um, um, VHS covers and stuff and like freak out in the middle of the store and something like that. But I knew to avoid the horror section of video stores because I was like, I might see Freddy. I knew to not be watching TV late at night with my cousin because I knew that nine times out of 10, they're going to try to like sneak in a Freddy Krueger episode or a movie or something like that. But I noticed that I could not, I noticed that there was some type of interest, you know, kind of like, a mo I don't want to sound cliche, but like a moth drawn to a flame. I mean, just to, I mean, I know that's a bad cliche, but that's pretty much what it was. Even though I knew not to go into the horror section, I was like still like hoping to get a glimpse of a Freddy Krueger box, a VHS box set or, or you no know, VHS cover. Or I was still hoping that like a Freddy Krueger show would come on or something like that and just be prepared for it and not surprised if that makes any sense. Like a surprise thing would probably scare the crap out of me, but if I was ready for it, I was like, I can you know, watch it. And I noticed even more when I was in like 
I think it was either third grade, maybe, when um, everybody was drawing. We had a drawing class one day, and all the kids were sitting there drawing um, various stuff, like, you know, them on the in front of their house, them, you know, at school, them in a fantasy land or something like that. I'm over here drawing the 1428 Elm Street house and Freddy Krueger because I wasn't so used to seeing like I, I wasn't that close to the TV to realize that he had on a red and green sweater. I was drawing red and black with you no know, bloody finger knives and stuff like that. And I don't I can't recall if a teacher talked to my mom about it or something like that. But I think that's when my parents started to realize like if something's going on with Mark and we don't know what it is, but this probably be a big problem. So they try to make sure that I didn't watch any horror movies though, but the more they tried to not the more they tried to make sure I didn't watch any horror movies, the more I was drawn to them. So, I don't know. I would just say that Freddie was, like I said, my first brush of fear. And it was like, and he was like the gateway into my love for horror or just my budding love for horror at that time. So, that's pretty much how Freddie came into my life. And it wasn't until, because I mean, by this time I had seen the original, but more along the lines, it was just like you saw it, but you weren't paying attention to it. You just knew certain moments was going to come up and stuff. And Glenn's death, Tina being drugged across the ceiling, you know, uh, Rob being hung in this um, prison cell. And then the infamous um, Marge Thompson being sucked into the door at the end of the movie. She was sucked into the door, but clearly she was drugged in there. But, you know, it was just, you know, it was a talk of the playground. It was like, you know, kids at school always talk about certain stuff like that. But at this point in time, I had only seen um, fully the first movie. I had seen Dream Warriors. And I, at that moment, that was one that I could tolerate if I was in a room with somebody at the time. And I remember seeing commercials for Dream Master and the Dream Child, but not really getting a chance to watch them until like maybe around the time where Freddy's Dead came out and I would probably find um the Dream Child a whole lot more for some reason, but they wouldn't air um the Dream Masters often back in the day or I would probably miss it. But I saw the Dream Child a couple of times and it wasn't until Freddy's Dead that I was like, hmm, I I think I I can tolerate Freddy to a certain degree you know what i'm saying it was more along the lines of i could tolerate him but it was like you know he's a he's a cool not not cool but he was just like oh he's funny but then at a, as somebody at that age i didn't realize that that probably was like not a good thing um especially going back and researching which i'm gonna get into in a minute but i would watch freddie's dead a lot you know um they had a lot of cool sequences a sequence um, excuse me they had a lot of cool sequences in the movie and especially the whole Spencer getting sucked into the TV via Inagata de Vida, you know, and then you had the whole video game dream. Then you had the death of John Doe and the 3D finale and whatnot. But it was, you know, in that time, at that time, I was like, oh, y'all love Freddy's Dead. And then they came out with New Nightmare and I was like, oh, shit. So this is a whole new Freddy. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is 
he's in the real world technically. So it was around the time that New Nightmare came out that I went back and just watched all the movies from point A to point B. And I think it was not too long after that where they came out with the, um, well, yeah, it was, I think, say, 96, 97 when they came out with the um, definitive box set at the time for the Blu-ray and for the DVD and VHS collections. Um, so I remember going to Walmart and they had a big display of all the Nightmare on Elm Street films for Halloween that year. And I sat there, put them all in order because they just threw them in this thing and just walked off. And I'm like, no, this has to go here. This has to go here. This has to go here. And... I remember trying to talk to my parents to let me buy a couple of them. And so I bought the original, I bought Nightmare 2, Dream Warriors, and I bought um, the Dream Master. And I came back and I think there was the rest of them was sold out or they had sold all of them or I just didn't, I missed them or something like that. I don't know, but I didn't have the complete set for the VHSs for a long time. So I relied on rental and whatnot. But... So, yeah, that's pretty much how I got into really trying to delve deep into the Elm Street mythos. But like I said, I would say, again, to, I guess, recap or reiterate, the first one that I came across was the original, of course, at the age of three or four. And did not return back to the try to look at them again until I saw Dream Warriors and a couple of episodes of, of Freddy's Nightmares. But they were blurred like. I can rem- I just remember Freddy Krueger popping up in the most inopportune moment and scaring the shit out of me and me running out the room. And then I would see like the dream child and I probably saw a couple of moments of, uh, I think the only thing I remember seeing when I first saw dream master, it wasn't a full movie, but I remember seeing it and my cousin was watching it and that's when Sheila died. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that's disgusting. So then I went and watched Freddy's Dead several times. Then I went back and borrowed my aunt's original Nightmare on Street tape to the point where I think I almost damn near ran the tape into the mud. So, I mean, I just worn it out, rather. So I went and bought me my own copy of it. And then I just started watching them in a sequential order. So... Yeah, and that was around maybe, like I said, around the time that the definitive box set for um, the VHSs and the DVDs came out. So let's just start with the original, um, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Like I said, going back and going from being, oh, Freddy's Dead is my favorite one because, you know, he's not as scary after watching a nightmare on Elm street several times and just like getting over that fear of the, you know, the completely, um, demonic and homicidal Freddy Krueger. Um, yeah, I started to really appreciate what Wes Craven did because also the, the series also really made me become one of those people that really paid attention to dreams and what they might be trying to tell you like what's your what is your deep inner psyche trying to tell you through these dreams you know what i'm saying and looking back some of the dreams i can actually remember some dreams i had around that time because they stuck with me because they were trying to tell me stuff that i wasn't trying that i wasn't getting and or they were telling me truths that I was not 
at that point in time ready to hear. Mark, you're gay. Mark, there's this thing. Racism is really bad, and you're not you're not seeing the disrespect around your white classmates or your white teachers or anything like that. And, you know, just just stuff like that. that I wasn't ready to just look at and be like, oh damn, you know. My dreams was trying to tell me to wake up to the reality going on around me. And I know that some people probably say, well, this, uh, uh, maybe reading the Bible made me pay close attention to my dreams or maybe just talking to my parents or somebody who was into dreams outside of, you know, that was what I maybe paid attention to the dreams. But for me, it was Nightmare on Elm Street because the whole concept of you going into, into dreaming and then realizing that you're not in control is scary yeah so when i watched the original i i just fell i fell in love with the i fell in love with the um foundations within the, the of the mythology you know there's this guy who stalks teens in their dreams and if he kills them in the dream they die for real so it was very nerve-wracking to feel that you can die in your sleep the one place where you think that you're safe it's like you no know, you can literally die in your sleep and then hearing that i did have family members who did die in their sleep it just even in, in, enhanced that you know whole fear and whatnot so but on the tip of the movie itself um let's just go and let's just get into it you know everybody knows the characters of nightmare on the street nancy thompson Tina Gray, Rod Lane, Glenn Lance, Marge Thompson, Donald Thompson, um, Fred Krueger. So you know all the the, the um, characters in the movies and stuff like that. So and in, in this particular film, but the original always stuck out to me because it was new. And looking at it in the historical context of the horror film and of just movies in general, it was a perfect blend of horror fantasy and psychological just just a fucked up psychological i, I me and my me and a friend was talking about this other night how we talk about how psychological thrillers is kind of like cold war for horror but it was kind of like it, it it just meshed a lot of stuff together and you didn't know what was what who you didn't know what was part of the dream and what was real you thought you did but you really didn't so um it, it was it's just um, um like i said the historical context of everything that was going on at that time in horror it was fresh you know yes you can put a killer in a mask and have them run around and attacking whoever they get their hands on but it's a different thing when you have to have the victim be attacked in their dreams it's like it's a whole other level of a cat and mouse chase you know you have to it's you know i'm seeing that they're dreaming you, you know so wes knew how to play with us with that and he just took something that was that some people consider just a regular old slasher and enhanced it you know he pretty much told everybody around him y'all gotta step your pussy up because now yeah, you can still make another movie with the killer with the mask on, just walking around stalking, you know, and, and like hiding in the shadows or whatnot. But you can't do any, you can't copy this. You know what I'm saying? It's like I'm, be, I'm sure there's a bit, there was a lot of movies out there that tried to emulate what a Nightmare on Elm Street brought to the table, but 
they could never reach it. They tried, but they could never reach it. And I would kind of argue to this day that I don't think that when it comes to a slasher, a supernatural slasher, only a few movies have come close to tackling that realm of, I guess, when, um, that, that, that era of like, you know, supernatural slasher type thing. But they haven't they haven't like touched. the You know, it's kind of like you climbing on a log in like one of those um, trust exercises with like a group of people they go into the woods and they do this trust exercise and they got to climb up this tall log if y'all didn't do it i did it for one of my group things though but and they would just say if you can get to the top just touch the flag and you done it you know you, you know yay you but that's the thing the flag is at the top the flag is a nightmare on elm street but not a lot of movies have come close to touching their flag. So, yeah, A Nightmare on Elm Street is just one of those movies that just continues to amaze me no matter how many times I watch it. Even to this day, I am 38 years old and I've probably seen A Nightmare on Elm Street. I know well over, probably over 500 times. I know that's pretty excessive, but it's just like sometimes I could just wake up and just put it on just for the have like, you know, have it on the background because, you know, it's just one of those things that's become it's amazing how it went from being this thing that terrorized me as a kid to being a comfort piece like it's like a comfort blanket of sorts and that's crazy but that's just how it is for me when it, when it comes to Nightmare Elm Street but um let's just dive into some of the things that I really love about the movie um I love the fact that the movie starts off with Tina and then you know she's the one having this nightmare and when you go to see, when you, as the movie plays on, she wakes up from this nightmare and it's been bothering her. So she talks to her friend Nancy about it. And you meet Nancy and Nancy's friend, um, her boyfriend, Glenn. And then you meet Rod. And this is not me going beat by beat. This is just me giving an example of why it sticks out to me. Well, until you get to Tina's house and when they have the scene where Nancy reveals that it sounds like the same guy I dreamed about and then Tina said it is the same guy and then they go outside and they have the interaction with Rod Lane now you have Nancy who is at that moment Tina's best friend and you have Glenn and you have Rod and you have Tina so you have this these four kids standing there but they're all kind of like it's kind of like a threshold of some sorts for me. So when Nancy has to diffuse the situation between Glenn and Rod, even though it's their friends, it was just the fact that she diffused the situation. Tina just stood by and just watched. It kind of pushed Nancy to the forefront a little bit. And then for me, the moment when the story becomes not Tina's story, but Nancy's story is when, Tina decides to go in the house and, you know, have makeup sex with Rod. But Nancy is like, no, we're here for Tina. She tells Glenn, no, we're not going to do what they're going to do. We're going to do better. And then once they go inside the house and you think because they're at Tina's house, but it's kind of like the fact that Tina revealed to Nancy that we dreamed about the same guy. It kind of became Nancy's story at that point because Nancy looked outside into the backyard out of like concern so 
it it to for me at that moment that's when the movie ended up becoming Nancy's movie. And some people probably say it was the moment when Tina died, and then you know you saw Nancy walk burst in and see her dead friend. And the, but for me, it really was like when they went inside the house. That's when the transition of narr- narration um, switched from Tina to Nancy. It lingered on Tina to Tina's death, but it really started to transition over from Tina to Nancy when they had the interaction with Rod Lane in the backyard. That's how I looked at it. So when, so as you know, Nancy goes through the motions trying to figure out how to stop Freddie and whatnot. And it's just every time I see this movie, every time I see the movie, when Nancy gets into, when she becomes her own person it's just exhilarating because you see somebody trying to fight back and instead of becoming a victim or just you know somebody who is just waiting to be you know, knocked off she is the only person in the entire movie that has some sense even though her appearance is going from like this you know teenage girl to this crazed young woman it's just the fact that that's just what she has to do to survive. You know, she has to, you know, just go with the punches and everybody else around her is just like just waiting to get knocked off or but I could say waiting to get knocked off, but just they're trying to help her. But then Freddie's very strategic with knocking off, you know, everybody that is, you know, around her and trying to like take her out but it's just every time you watch this movie for every time i watch the movie it just, it's just like an exercise on taking control of the situation or that's spiraling around you but not just trying to take control of it haphazardly but just take control of it by being smart and nancy was being totally smart with it even though she felt like she was slowly losing her sanity but she still maintained some sense of self and some sense of and some common sense. I mean, some people might argue with certain things that she did that was kind of stupid, but in this particular playing field, she had to, you know, I felt like to me personally, I, I just can't see that, that she did anything stupid because she did try to tell everybody what time it was and nobody was listening to her. So she decided to take everything, you know, and just handle the situation herself. You know, so, um, but like I said, a nightmare on the street. Like, if you've heard one podcast talking about the significance of the movie to the horror genre, and to it's just a gem that should be protected at all costs. You know, some people tend to sit there and say that Dream Warriors was the better movie, and I'm arguing with them that you can't say that something is the better movie without, especially if the movie would not be there if it wasn't for the original. I love Dream Warriors. I feel like it is, like I said, I don't like picking kids, but it's a damn good horror sequel in general. I would equate it to being the um, the Godfather Part Two of horror sequels because it took something that was supposed to have been a one-off situation, but it enhanced it and changed it for the better in my personal opinion um so and it had a lot of great characters but i'm not gonna jump on it deep into jerry warriors at the moment i'm gonna just slide my way into freddy's revenge first but before i go into freddy's revenge i just want to say that a nightmare on elm street is that movie that it, it sticks with you um 
especially given the fact of how much it has not informed me, but it's always been there in every growth moment in my life, if that makes any sense. Um, like I said, it was the first film I came across that scared the crap out of me. It was my first brush with fear. Um, it introduced me to Freddy Krueger. And unlike, um, I mean, unlike Chucky, he's been like a friend to the end, but I probably messed that up, but it's just that Freddie has been there with me in every aspect of life and growth and whatnot. So, but again, we would not have that. I would not have that if it wasn't for the original movie. Um, one day I may go into depth and just try probably talk about each film with another fan or maybe a, do an episode where it may be the a first time watch for someone and do a, a episode with somebody who's seen it countless times as I have just to sit there and break down the beats because I'm sure people want it. But at this point in time, I just want to focus on the aspects of each film and how they resonated with me throughout life. So M nightmare M street, you know, if you haven't seen it, let me know. And I might want to have you on the podcast. So if you have seen it, let me know. And if we vibe well, I might want to have you on the podcast. So now we're just going to go ahead and go to Freddy's Revenge. Freddy's Revenge was, it took me a long time to actually gain, get, it took me a long time to give Freddy's Revenge its flowers. Let's just say it like that. Because I was one of those people who were like, oh, it's not connected to the rest of the movies. Or I was like, it's connected, but it's not. It doesn't, it's just, you could tell that they, it was like a sore thumb in a line of great films. But the more I watched it, and then it's, again, like Nightmare M Street did, um, the more I realized how much it kind of, you know, resonated with me in certain aspects of my life, um, especially the whole homoerotic or homosexual undertone of the film. Um, so let's go back to when I first came across it. Um, like I said, my aunt had the original Nightmare on Street, but the second one you had to rent because I didn't know anybody in my hometown that had that movie except for the video stores. And I watched it, but it was like, the last one that I, you know, searched for because it didn't have any of, you know, like it didn't mention Nancy. It didn't mention, uh, any of the, excuse me, any of the other characters from the rest of the movies. I'm like, I don't know. I just want to see what's, I, I love Nancy. I want to see more of Nancy, blah, 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 blah. So when I finally did watch it, it was probably right after, it was probably during my time after I seen like, the dream master and the dream child and freddy's day i just went back and watched two granted i saw pieces of part two especially the pool parties um slaughter scene so it was it was you know but it wasn't one that i was like itching to find mainly because i felt like during that whole jesus christ i'm scared of freddy krueger phase i felt like part two was the darker one because you i mean you barely could see him just like in the original but even in the original you saw him in some spurts but it just like freddy's truly remained in the shadows in the sequel and um 
I just that kind of unnerved me. But also, it just didn't like the music and the um, the tone was kind of different from the rest of the films. So, but looking back with like um, chronologically, um, Freddy's Revenge is the sequel that people claim they want, but when they get it, they shit on. And this is not. This is barring the homosexual undertone that a lot of people try to like use against the film for one of the reasons why they didn't like it. But it's just a, it was a sequel that didn't try to rehash everything that the first one did. Um, granted, the body count was a slightly higher, give or take, but there wasn't like people going to sleep and then next thing you know, they're being stalked by Freddie or whatnot. It was like, they would try to do something different with the character and with the mythology. And in today's times, I have to give it props for trying to do that. I'm not going to, I, I, like, again, I'm not going to shit on it because I felt like initially I thought that it was a bad sequel because it just only mentioned Nancy in passing you have nancy's diary but at the same time i felt like where else could you have gone at that particular moment with the character because the movie the original movie ended with nancy bringing him into real life so in terms it's kind of like still kind of like trying to say well let's try to get him he's in real life but he's he's a ghost and he can't do much of anything because he's powerless so he has to like he might as well possess somebody to go ahead and just, you know, continue his rampage. That makes sense. To me, it does. Um, but if you really pay attention to the original movie, you kind of realize that the original movie was, and the entire movie was a dream. So, technically, Nancy didn't bring him into real life. She just, kind of like an, an exception type thing where she just brought him, like, he made her think that he brought him he made her think that she brought him into real life, but in actuality, she didn't, you know. So there's the whole um, conundrum with that situation. However, um, clearly a lot of people didn't take it that way. So I'm pretty sure that's probably why they did the sequel, the second movie. And I could be completely wrong, but that's just how I look at it. Um, again, the characters in the movie, you know, um, Jesse... Lisa, Grady, Mr. Walsh, Mrs. Walsh, you know, Carrie, um, Coach, was it Schneider? Yeah. Um, so it's those characters, like I said, they weren't like cookie cutters of the original. I mean, kind of, they kind of will. Um, Jesse, Lisa, Grady, and Carrie kind of were like, you know, another version of Glenn, Nancy, Tina and Rod, but they weren't all connected, you know, like oh, they're all best friends, it was more along the lines like uh, Lisa, I mean Carrie is Lisa's friend L Lisa likes Jesse Jesse likes Lisa, Grady is a classmate of theirs, it was just more like just four random kids, but they weren't like all having the same nightmare, it was just the fact that Jesse was being possessed by Freddie and Lisa was the only one who was there to try to help him understand what's going on inside 1428 Elm Street and whatnot. And Grady and Carrie was just there to be like, you know, friends. 
so it was a different avenue for the series to go down and i i applaud it for the effort and because like i said again there's a lot of horror movies even to this day that have there's a lot of horror franchises that tend to have it's just a by the books you know type atmosphere when it comes to executing out the next sequel you know it's more along the lines of let's play the game again but except we're going to change the setting and maybe a couple of characters but the end game is going to be the same you know and that's not really a a drag against horror franchises because that's what we want it's just that when we do get that sequel that tends to go away from the formula then people start to be up in arms about it or whatnot but there's some cases where that is warranted and there are some though there are some cases where that is not warranted and i feel like freddie's revenge is one of those cases where it was not warranted and i think one of the main reasons why a lot of people tend to shit on the sequel and back then it was very openly you know the movie is so gay it's so fucking you know homoerotic and this this and that but now it's like you really can't use that as an excuse as to why you didn't like it so now it goes from being like well it's not like the rest of the movie other movies and stuff so um not saying that you should like it i'm not saying that you should like it but i'm just saying that you know the the argument that is gay is not well recepted you know um and now in today's audiences and some people can just can just sit there and say it was a inferior sequel um i can't knock anybody for that i would defend it but you know if somebody is very against a certain film or a certain aspect of the movie then you know you gotta let them have their you know cake so um yeah phrase revenge i on multiple replays like i said you see some of the homoerotic stuff pop out even but even when i was a kid and i watched i could tell there was something odd about you know the whole thing but with you have adult lenses it pops out even more and then you add not the just the adult lenses but like the gay adult lenses then it's just really just laid out there it's kind of like it's kind of like putting on the the adult the gay adult lenses are it's kind of like putting on a pair of 3d glasses and seeing all the gay undertone and the gay you know subtext within the film and it just pops out like you know like it pops out at you you know what i'm saying so it's just you know it's kind of like you're holding a black light up to like some human um dna or specimen or something like that so yeah i welcome that especially in today's audience i'm um, today's audience but it's today's um format because um yeah it's it's you can't ignore it you know it's it's right there and it's an allegory for you know the horror of not being able to control your hormones or just not being able to ignore who you are truly deep inside now granted the movie ended with um, somebody could some people could say the movie ended with heterosexuality winning and you know um jesse's free to be the straight guy that he wants to be with lisa and whatnot but 
we don't know what happens to them after the bus goes into the desert. We don't know if Jesse and Lisa, and we don't care his ass is gone, but we don't know if Jesse and Lisa are like, did they survive? Did, you know, it's just one of those mysteries of Elm Street that has yet to be answered. It probably would never be answered. Um, probably shouldn't be answered. But if Jesse and Lisa survive that, then you have to ask yourself who was dreaming. Um, did they manage to leave Springwood? And if they did leave Springwood, are they still friends? Because we know probably late in life, Jesse probably ended up being a gay man. But you know who was dreaming and whatnot um in that sequence so but there's hell jesse probably was still asleep and didn't realize it or um lisa was probably the one who was asleep we don't know but yeah the the ending was kind of ambiguous but I, it's kind of one of my favorite endings in all, in all of the um elm street movies and i'm not one for bleak endings um I mean, most horror films have bleak endings, but there's still that whole little sliver of hope in some of them with the bleak ending. But this was pretty bleak, and you didn't know what was what happened to the main characters. And but it was still a fun ride. Um, I enjoy Fred's Revenge a lot now. Um, I champion it. I tell other you know queer horror fans, you know, give it another chance. Um, Try, I try to tell people to look at it from another angle, try to look at it from a queer angle, try to look at it from, you know, any angle outside the Elm Street angle. Um, personally, I would look at it through the Elm Street angle and the queer angle. Any angle you want me to look at, I'm going to look at it because I love the film. So so that's Freddy's Revenge. Um, now we're going to slide over into Dream Warriors. Oh my God, what can I say about Dream Warriors? Dream Warriors, oh boy, that was the movie that my mom was like, this movie tore up my VCR because that's when I learned to record movies. So the first couple of movies I learned to record were actually Dream Warriors and The Lost Boys. Um, so, but I will watch Dream Warriors usually with my hands over my face when the time Freddy comes up, but. I was here for Kristen. I was here for Kincaid. I was here for the return of Nancy, Taryn, um, Will. And I've just, and Joey, I just realized that most people consider those as the Dream Warriors and that Philip and Jennifer was just like, oh, y'all are not Dream Warriors. Y'all are just bodies. So, because they didn't get a chance to live out their um, fantasies and whatnot. But this is where the Elm Street series started to like utilize each of not their dreams, but their hobbies, their quirks, their um, vices against them in the dream world when he would attack them and whatnot. This is when, cause you know, in the original, it was just like, I don't care what you into. I'm just going to kill you if I come across you. But it was just like, you know what? I'm going to start toying with y'all by using your, weaknesses and your vices against you to take you down and so you know like you got philip with the puppet thing we had jennifer with the tv thing and you know joey with his um his um mute situation and being just a horn dog then you have um 
Ken K would Ken K really to me didn't have a weakness. Um <laughs> his weakness was I, he didn't have a weakness. I I cannot see Ken K with any type of weakness. Even in the fourth film, it was just the fact that Ken K really was the strongest motherfucker out of all of them. Now granted he didn't get a chance to utilize that against Freddie too much, but when he did, it showed. And some people would probably say that um that was not a it was like it was a it was a take on the strong black man thing trope but i mean i could see that argument but at the same time i could also say that ken k was the only person who just did not take the bullshit from everybody so it was just like you take ken k and pair him up against nancy and like you have nancy from nightmare one and then you have ken k Nancy pretty much had a lot of people doubting her. Like, you know, like, this isn't real. You're just imagining things. Ken K not only told you to go fuck yourself, I'm not imagining things, though, but you're not about to do anything to try to make me go to sleep. So um, I feel like he, he, was, he had to be strong because I'm pretty sure from where he came from, he probably did not have as much as of um he probably did not have a safety net of some sorts you know and the only thing that they could think about to do was just send him to the psychiatric ward because he was talking like what people probably consider was crazy in our community and whatnot so he he didn't have he didn't he didn't land there because of he tried to kill himself or he was on drugs or he constantly like burned himself or he would you know cut himself or something like that he just ended there because i'm pretty sure people from where he was did not know how to deal with something like that and it was more along the lines of like look we're not finna look we don't know what to do so we're going to send you to the psychiatric ward you know so and so i felt like kincaid out of all of the dream warriors did not have a weakness. He did not have a vice that could be used against him. And I pretty much feel that that is the reason why Freddie came for him first in nightmare four. So I'm, I'll save that for later, but outside of Ken K you did have the second other powerful dream warrior to me was Kirsten or Kristen, excuse me because Kristen, you know, had the power to bring people into dreams or whatnot, which is a, that's a big ass power. I wished like hell when I was growing up, I would always try to sit there and see if I could bring somebody into my dream. Like I would ask my sister, like, yeah, I dreamed about you last night. Were you, did you dream? Did I tell her about the dream? She's like, no. And I'm like, okay, then. So that didn't work, but it was just, I would love to have done that can you imagine being able to bring somebody into your dream and y'all share a dream and then you know it probably weird if initially though but just the fact that you know it's a you know it's like this secret clubhouse of some sort where you can just sit there and just bring a, you know the people that you love into your dream space and you know just talk to them and some people might say it's even kind of selfish because you're like look i was dreaming perfectly fine i just won a thousand a million dollars and i was living my life perfectly but then here you got over here talking about some crazy shit so it has its perks and it has its cons you know what i'm saying um so but kirsten was the other powerful dream warrior in my personal opinion um we didn't get a chance to see what will and taryn could have done 
because Freddie pretty much took care of them pretty quickly. But again, I feel that they were probably just as powerful together than they were apart. So he was kind of real smart to separate them and just take them out one by one. It just I feel like Ken K probably looked up and got to um Nancy and cursed him, you know, in time because I'm pretty sure he probably been next on the menu. Um so because he tried to go for Kirsten first, but Kirsten used her gymnastics and stuff like that, which is another power of hers to um, to escape. And I'm pretty sure if he came for Kincaid, I'm pretty sure Kincaid probably whipped his ass too in some capacity. So, um, so, but let's get back to the return of Nancy Thompson, who I felt was warranted. And most people probably look at it like, well, they didn't have, that's one of the reasons why the sequel failed is because she wasn't there. But I feel like Nancy had to grow in terms of like into the young woman she was when she came into Dream Warriors. I just can't see her going facing Freddie again at the stage that she was when um, the original ended. I mean, she could have faced him, but I felt like it would have been probably she probably been like worn out by that time. So it was probably good for her to like to get away and just recuperate and just try to fight him on the tip of science and medicine or whatnot or just trying to figure out a way to take what she's learning and then come back and try to you know combat him on a better playing field so i every time i see nancy when she comes into dream warriors i just be like yes you know yes because the way she came in it was just like we needed that she's like a ray of sunshine when she walked into the um room with Kristen and just asked her who where'd you learn that rhyme and because she knew that this was her time to shine this was not not her time to shine to be like I'm a you know I'm an expert on this blah 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 but more along the lines of like okay everything I've been trained to do so far has come to this and because she could have easily sat there and said oh this shit again fuck no i'm out you know what i'm saying y'all deal with this on your own terms i don't want to have to go through this shit again i lost all my friends i lost my mom my dad is like a alcoholic because of this i don't want to go through this again but she went into it head first like and that's one of the reasons why i gravitate towards all the final girls i gravitate towards nancy thompson because at that moment she emulated what her mom told her before she went to sleep you face things that is your gift that's your you know that's you you face things but sometimes you got to turn away from things and i feel that nancy knows when to turn away like she did at the end of, a, of the original nightmare elm street but she also knows when she has to face it so this is one of the reasons why i love her so much because she had the opportunity to do the not facing this but instead she was like there's a group of kids in danger and if I have a way to save them, I'm going to do it. And she did it selflessly. You know, she could have easily been like, you know, we got to get some more people to come in here and help us though. But if we don't need, but she was like, we can fight this together. She was, she was a true leader. She went from being a teenage girl to a, a warrior. You know what I'm saying? By the end of dream warrior. So as much as I hate that she died at the end of Dream Warriors, I felt like doing what she was trying to do, which was to 
try to save these kids and to try to save everybody from from Freddie. You know what I'm saying? So he, that was her nemesis. And even though she died, she took him down too. And it was just kind of like the the battle was won for her. You know what I'm saying? She kind of won in that regards, though. But we know that it didn't end like no, it didn't it didn't end. It wasn't the end all battle for her. So. Or for Freddie, or rather, you know, so. Um, but she passed on what she knew to the remaining Dream Warriors, Kristen, Kincaid, and Joey. So, and then um, Dr. Neil, um, who I'm kind of upset. That's another one of those characters that I was upset didn't return in the movies in some form or mentioned. You know what I'm saying? I felt like that was he was a character that could have came back in Nightmare Five, maybe. You know, um, hell, Kristen could have even told Alice about him before she died. You know, he was just one of those characters that kind of left unscathed. You know, he sat there and experienced it and just went on his merry way. I wish I knew what happened to Doctor Neil Gordon um, because he, like, if. Nancy had have gotten her dad or anybody, any type of adult figure to believe her in the original, that would have helped out a whole lot. And I think that without Dr. Neil Gordon, I think that all the dream warriors would have died in, you no, know, at the end of that movie, because he was the, he was the one who, you know, went and went head first to the battle and got his ass kicked, but he came through in the end, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah um the thing about another thing about dream warriors is the fact that it carried over it was like a when i was watching these movies you know in order i started to see a sort of theme pop up that each elm street movie has a theme with it um the first one was just you know the theme of being like you know being a teenager and not and having to also grow up too fast you know um because you have nancy and the rest of them and they know it's the it's the sins of the father pretty much so that's the thing for the original and it's just the thing the sins of the father comes back to haunt the um offspring and the, the you know the the children so nancy has nancy tina glenn and rye are paying for their parents sins and their parents are actually not acting like parents. They're acting like children because they don't want to acknowledge what they've done. In Nightmare 2, this was the movie that, you know, the theme was um, sexuality, like teenage sexuality. Because not only was Jesse trying to, like the, the um, metaphor of Freddie, aka homosexuality, trying to take over his body. You also have Lisa, who, unlike Nancy, was like, no, I want, I want the dick. I want it. You know what I'm saying? So everybody and all four of the kids and um, Freddy's Revenge were just horny. They were going through like, I think that is the outside of Dream Master. I mean, Dream Master, but um, the Dream Child. Um, actually, Dream Child. What I'm trying to say is outside of sex. Um that was the only the Freddy's Revenge was the only movie that really relied on you know 
teenage hormones, whatnot, to carry some of the characters' um, aspirations. You have even the Coach Snyder, his whole little thing with the um, leather bar and whatnot. And um, it's just very, it was sexually driven without giving us sex, if you get what I'm trying to say, because it was, there was not a sex scene in that movie whatsoever. The only thing we saw was a bare ass. And, um, I don't know if we even saw some titties. I, I can't recall. Uh, I know Carrie's top came off in the pool, but I don't know if we actually saw her breasts. So there's that. And then um, Nightmare 3, where um, Dream Warriors was about teen suicide or teen mental health and teen suicide and whatnot. So in the next movie was about, um, I feel like, Self, teen self-esteem and you no know, five was about teenage pregnancy and I get into what um, Freddie's dead was which is I think this where it kind of lost that whole thing but we'll get to that later but um, yeah Dream Warriors was about teenage suicide teenage mental health and how these kids were dumped in the same in psychiatric ward because their parents did not know what to do with them they didn't know how to deal with this you know sort of epidemic you know what i'm saying it was like you know okay we can throw so much money at this just make it go away and again it just leaves the kids vulnerable to freddie because um it's kind of echoing the sins of the father thing except that this time the sins of the father isn't you know we well they did but it's more than we killed this guy and buried him and now we just moving on with our lives. It's more along the lines of like, we don't know how to deal with teenagers today. So if we got the money, we're just going to just throw it at the doctors to have them do it, you know, because we didn't see one parent outside of Kristen's mom, who pretty much probably spoke for all the fucking parents and them and for the kids and dream warriors. I've done tons of things to try to get this taken care of. I've tried psychiatrists after psychiatrists and nothing's coming through. So I'm just going to put her in the home. I'm going to put her in the psychiatric ward. You know, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done. And that is scary. You know, it was when your parents are just like, you know, instead of me sitting down and trying to understand what is going on with you, I'm just going to send you away. Like you are last season's, clothes i'm just gonna pack you up and just put you away somewhere and just deal with you when i get the opportunity to do so if i even want to come back and try to do that so yeah there's a lot that can be said about the parents of springwood and how shitty they are i can't think of one parent that i mean don't get me wrong don thompson is a great well i would say Don Thompson was a great dad up until Dream Warriors. And even still, he tried to, he did try to fight at the end, but, you know, he got his ass handed to him. But all the parents in all the Nightmare films are crap. We had one parent that was a reprieve, oh, not reprieve, but um, that was rebounded, and that is um, Mr. Johnson from from his role in Nightmare 4 to Nightmare 5. He became a better father in Nightmare 5 than he was in Nightmare 4. And, um, but I think it took him losing the kid to realize that, you know, I got to be a better dad. But again, I'm jumping ahead again. So, but no, Dream Warriors is 
a great sequel because it again it enhanced what the original nightmare introduced and it expanded the mythology and the universe and you know again i feel like it's a superior sequel to um of all the um slashers you know it's just that sequel that a lot of slashers wish they could be i mean don't get me wrong i feel like each the halloween franchise has this dream warriors i feel like to me that sequel is halloween 2 um 1981 um that's just me because i haven't seen halloween 2018 enough to know if there's a, some people might argue say it's halloween 4 the return of michael myers um but i prefer halloween 2 because it it's just one of those movies that is just very it still has it still has some sort of it's if it, it feels like a continuing tissue with the original movie in my opinion friday the 13th has is some people argue that it is part four i will argue that it's jason lives um but that's just me um I don't. I can't speak for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I can't speak for Child's Play. I think Child's Play Two was a great sequel for it. But um, Scream. Some people say Scream Two is the better sequel. I I agree with them one hundred percent on that because it has the same feel as the original, but it changes up some stuff a little bit. Um, but Dream Warriors is just the bee's knees. I know that's cliche as fuck though, but it is. I mean. I can. That's one of the few sequels I could just throw in on any movie, and just watch it just on the movie alone. Granted that I still respect the original, but it's just like it's the characters, it's the soundtrack, it's the dream sequences, it's the great lines. You know, it's just it's just a great film. You know, but again, you have to respect that we would not have a Dream Warriors if there was not. Uh, Nightmare on Street. So, I'm pretty sure there's more I could talk about with Dream Warriors, but I'm going to move on to the Dream Master, and I'm going to take a break here and get back with you guys in just a second. Okay, everybody, we're back. Um, before we start on the Dream Master, I want to say one last thing about Dream Warriors. When I came across Dream Warriors, like I said, it was around the time where my fear of Freddy Krueger was wanting a little bit and I became more intrigued. So this was like probably at the birth of my love for horror. And it sticks with me to this day because of, you know, characters like Kristen Parker, Roland Kincaid, um, well, Nancy, of course, and to even to some extent, Taryn White and even Dr. Neil Gordon. It's just they all represent some form of, uh, I guess, a role model. You know, they just decided to take matters into their own hands when everybody else was not caring or not trying to hear what they had to say and they instilled in me you know the the 
will to keep going in the face of adversity. And anybody can say that could be with any character in the Nightmare on the Street. But for me, at around the age of, because um, Dream Warriors was released in 87, but 88 and 89, that's when I became more and more creative and I became more and more, um, I became more of a daydreamer in a sense. You know, I started to dream a whole lot about what I wanted to do when I grew up and everything. And that's where those characters came in. And throughout life, I will always go to Dream Warriors as like one of the most innovative sequels in the Elm Street franchise. And I will go 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 back and relive, you know, certain scenes and certain moments that always stuck with me. Like the 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 Hall of Mirror scene, you know, it's very very scary, but it was I, I just love looking at it. I mean, it's just a great sequence, and you know. It kind of leads into the Dream Master for me later on when I get to that in a few minutes, though. But also um, the scene with Kristen when she does the flip over the wall. I mean, that's always been like one of my favorite moments on Nightmare on Elm Street. And the whole battle at the end between, you know, the, the, the remaining Dream Warriors and Freddy. It's just it's just a great, great movie. So it's always going to stick with me forever. And like I said earlier, I just think it's the the godfather 2 of horror sequels i mean i don't i can't think of any other sequel that comes close i can't think of any other horror sequel that comes close to dream warriors i mean i I just cannot so so moving on to the dream master the dream master surprisingly came in basically i don't know the dream the dream master wasn't one of the last films i watched but it was one of the ones that I remember my cousins watching a lot, but I was always in the outside of the room, but they always loved the dream master and growing up and looking at it myself and then researching it. I can kind of see why that's, it came out in 88, which is around the time where MTV was at its peak. So, and if you look at some of the, if you YouTube or even if you do the nightmare and street encyclopedia library, um, disc on the, the, the new line DVD set that came out a while back. If you look at some of the um, the clips on there, it seems like that's when they really, really started to bring Freddy Krueger into the forefront, doing a lot of commercials, doing a lot of um, stints on comedy shows. He was on Capital Follies, um, or DC Follies, excuse me. He was also on, he did a lot of MTV, you know, um, special specialty hours and whatnot and he just was popping up all over the place you couldn't hide from him um but i think that's why my cousins gravitated a lot towards that movie i think even to this day they like dream they love dream warriors but they would still pop in the dream master because it was just kind of like it was the dream it was dream warriors um wild twin if you if you will you know so i can get that um but for me the dream master because I was a big Dream Warriors person. Like I said, I was more Dream Warriors and Freddy's Dead. But then as time went on, I started to gravitate more towards Dream Warriors and the Dream Master. As a matter of fact, I consider this the second part in the Dream Trilogy. You know, Dream Warriors, Dream Master, the Dream Child. So, so yeah. Dream, the Dream Master, it really... But as as I got older, the Dream Master, especially around the time that I was a teenager when I was really taking these movies in, I gravitated a lot towards the Dream Master because of Alice Johnson. 
I literally had a mirror in my room and I literally put a lot of pictures and like, you know, cutouts from posters and magazines and stuff over it because I really did not like looking at myself in the mirror. I did not like what I saw. And yes, I know I said the Dream Warriors was the movie that showed me how to just face anything and um and daydream and face anything um despite the odds, you know, go against the odds and just tackle anything that comes your path but i be like i said dream warriors was the like silent not silent but the more chill twin to the wild and pretty outrageous dream master and i felt that in the especially with my teen years um around 14 15 i gravitated a lot towards Alice's shyness, her, you know, demean, not demean, the demure demeanor, uh, just, you know, just quiet and very like a shell. She was like the shelled a person and like she hit all this pent up rage and just, you know, power that was, you know, deep inside her. And it took all of this, these events the death of her brother, her friends and everything to like bring her out of her shell. Yes. True. Um, each person who died, got her power. She gained everybody's powers that died and they kind of helped her break out of her shell. But it's, if you switch that power, that literal power with, um, advice, you know, genuine friendship, genuine love, genuine um camaraderie and all that then you can see where i was coming from because like i said i didn't hit my peak of, of um coming out of my shell until i got to college so what alice the transformation alice went through or rather the metamorphosis alice went through in probably a week or two maybe three weeks maybe i it took about I want to say five years because yeah, I about five or six years by, by, by the time I got to college. Cause I started college when I was 19. So yeah, I gravitate a lot towards the dream master. And I think that a lot of people, even though it's the most, I'm going to say it's the most popular, but it was the, um, the biggest money, the biggest money making. Um, <laughs> it was the highest grossing, Elm Street film at the time so and also up until I think Freddy vs. Jason came out a lot of people still kind of crap on it and I kind of find it like you know crazy maybe because everybody's more into the well Freddy was scarier in the earlier movies he wasn't always in the scene he was always in the dark and now he's out in the light it's like it's like sheep, you know, people are going to sit there and read something and go with it and just call it gospel. But I feel like if I had to rank the the sequels, not a nightmare in street, because I don't like to, I don't like to rank the movies if I have to, but if I had to, I would put the dream master behind dream warriors as a great note. That's, that's number two in the sequels because it passed the baton over to a new set of, um, kids and also it gave us a new heroine in Alice Johnson it also gave us a likable set of you know friends this time around you know you have Kristen who is the remaining 
who was the tie from the last Elm Street kids, which consisted of, you know, Roland Kincaid and Joey Crusell. But Kristen introduced us to Alice, Rick Johnson, Debbie Stevens, Sheila Kopecky, and Dan Jordan. So we get these new people, and it's really like 18 ages, but you kind of, it's kind of like people you know from school. And I know some people could probably put like, all of them into a category the jock the brain the the beauty queen the you know sarcastic you know druggy person and or you know but it's just i feel like the group transcends those tropes if you you know they they send some of the tropes i would say um I just don't think that anybody could live up to the group that was in Dream Warriors, but like, cause they didn't have any jocks. They didn't have any cheerleaders. They just had like troubled teens. And I think that's why a lot of people gravitate towards the Dream Warriors cast. But I feel that the, the Dream Master cast is a very close second, you know, to comparing to Dream Warriors. I feel that they, like I said, there would be people I would probably hang out with in school, you know, and it was it wasn't like um, the reason why I say they elevate more than the trust is because they just seem like a regular group of friends. You know, everybody has their quirks. Everybody has their thing. But it seems like it was a mixed bag of people, of kids, you know, teenagers. So and I would say that that is probably how I would like describe my friends um, and that I've grown to, you know, have. Everybody's a mixed bag. There's not a a pretty person or a jock. Everybody's a mixed bag. And I think that's why I kind of gravitate towards the Dream Master a lot. I know I watched a lot when I was in college because they rep, rep, they represented some of my friends in college. And college was in 2003 to 2008. So even still at that range, I still felt like they the dream master cast resembled most of my college friends. Um, as the dream master, as the dream warriors dealt with teen suicide, the dream master dealt with self-esteem. And like I said, that was a big issue I had when I was in high school and middle school and why I gravitated to Alice Johnson. All of Alice's friends had these great qualities about them that she wished that she had. Even Sheila, who was a nerd, but she was a determined studier. She was a determined, um, well, she was a determined, she was, she was a student that was smart and just, you know, she had the asthma thing, but she was still smart. She didn't let the asthma stop her. And she was the brains of the group. Now, I'm pretty sure that's probably how why Freddie got rid of her first was because she was the brains of the group and she probably could have sat there and like, you know, came up with something to defeat him. He's pretty smart. And some people are like, you give him too much credit though. But no, Freddie knows to go after the smart people, the the, the people who, uh, or the, the, the strong ones. He tries to go after them first before he, you know, goes in for the kill. I kind of think that he fucked up when he didn't um, go for Kincaid in the first, in the um, Dream Warriors. But, he learned his lesson this time around. He went for Kincaid first, and then he also went for Sheila, who was the brains, which is kind of crazy because Sheila and Kincaid are both black, and they were the first to go in both of Kristen's um, friend groups, which is, you know, an issue there. But still, um, I'm trying to give 
Sheila her props, and I feel that he went after her first because she he probably felt that she was weak because of the asthma. But at the same time, I feel like she's the brains of the group, and she could have probably whooped his ass in the end if, if they didn't catch if he didn't catch her off guard. But but at the same, so you have Sheila who's the brains, you have Rick who is like the kung fu master and whatnot, and he was the second person. See, he he Freddie went after Rick next, and so. It he was also the strongest one in Alice's friend group, and so he took that was her rock. So he took her, and then Debbie was also strong, but he went he 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 went after the strong ones first, and then Dan. I would say Dan was pretty strong because Alice had to sit there and save his ass in the end. But um, still, you had, you know, he was pretty much like the new person to the group, and he was just trying to figure out like what the hell's going on, and Alice had to clue him, in, clue him in, but his saving grace was that he took to Alice a whole lot quicker in terms of believing somewhat, believing what she was telling them and because Kristen was saying the same thing. And um, that pretty much is probably why I feel like he survived this particular film. But Alice being the, the focal point of the movie, she gained all of these attributes from her friends. And as each person dropped, she became stronger. And I feel that was also something that I felt growing up, going into college. Like, instead, like I said before, instead of power, I was gaining my friends' knowledge about a lot of things that I was pretty much ignorant to. And not willfully ignorant, but just, you know, like, ignorant to and not understanding certain things because of know i came from a different era but my friends enhanced my personality and i don't want to sit there and say that i wouldn't be the person i am if it wasn't for them but at the same time i would be lying if i said that they weren't influenced they didn't influence some part of my personality and just trying to get me out of my shell and to realize that the entire world wasn't out to get me that I did have allies in certain places and that was, you know, that, but on the, on, in the chronology side of like the film series, this before the dream master came out, I felt that, and just say this point for the um, second episode, I felt that this is when, um, cause this is when Freddy's nightmares premiered. I believe it was post, I think it was post Dream Warriors. So the first season of Freddy's Nightmares was running concurrently while the Dream Master was in theaters. And the second season aired, I think, after the Dream Child. Um, so I just wanted to put this as a remind, reminder of where I'm going to go in the second episode of Elm Street Journey with the with the Freddy's Nightmare series. So just pinpoint that for the next episode. But yeah, so to round out, so just to give, just to leave my personal experiences to the side, I think the Dream Master is, like I said, it's one of, it's, it's a great follow-up sequel to Dream Warriors in that it passed the mantle of, you know, Dream Powers over to Alice, who doesn't get a lot of respect to me um, when it comes to Final Girls. I know when it comes to Nightmare on Elm Street, we always see Nancy get paired up, and, and Freddie eventually ends up 
battling Nancy three times, but the third time is technically not really Nancy. It is Heather Langenkamp because she was the first person to, as they say in the movie, humiliate him and defeat him. But I feel that Alice Johnson should get, when like when people do murals and I'm not telling I'm not trying to say to people, tell people how to do their drawings or anything like that. You love Nancy Thompson. I mean, that's cool. But I feel that the Nightmare M Street franchise, and I would even throw in to a certain degree um, Halloween, you know, but Halloween is a choose your own adventure type thing. But when it comes to a Nightmare on M Street, you have, you really have Nancy and Alice Johnson. Now, I know some people would be like, well, Kristen, Kristen Parker is also, you know, a final girl. But Kristen Parker, to be perfectly honest, while I love her and I love her character, Kristen was always protected in both movies in a certain degree. Because when Nancy, Nancy died to protect Kristen Parker, she was always the end goal. Well, she wasn't the end goal for Freddie, but it was just the fact that she was like the link between Nancy and the the last of the Elm Street kids and whatnot. She was the only one who was aware, but she was truly protected by the dream warriors and Nancy. Once Nancy died and then the dream master began, Kristen, be, she was left vulnerable once Kincaid and Joey was taken out. She was like gone just like that, you know? So I, not, I'm not trying to give her flowers on the flannel girl status, but if I would have to pick Kristen and Alice in a fight, I would go heads up with, I, I would team up with Alice because she's the stronger one out of the two, in my personal opinion. Uh, and it's not just because she survived two movies, but it's just the fact that she's very resilient and she could be emotional at times, which is not a bad trait, but it's just the fact that, you know, that emotional because some people take um, uh, somebody being emotional as a bad trait as a weak trait but it's not her emotions is what made her stronger in my in my opinion because it made her be more cognizant of what's going on and not just sitting still waiting for somebody to save her she has more uh, she she has more in common with nancy which is why I feel that she should get the flowers that she deserves when it comes to final girl status, because she's the only one who fought Freddie and lived um, within the Elm Street chronology, barring Wes Craven's mm -hmm. new nightmare. So this is why I rocks with Alice Johnson. I, I champion her and I think that um, Nancy would have probably still been here. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm blaming Nancy, um, um, Kristen for Nancy's death, but I really believe that Nancy probably would still been with us if Kristen might have been sedated, you know, because she was left vulnerable. She was vulnerable. She couldn't do anything, really. Um, but at the same time, um, she fought, but she had, like, a group of people to fight with her. But even when she tried to fight Freddie by herself, it was like a one – it was a wrap. So not knocking Kristen Parker. I don't want to offend any Kristen Parker fans out there because I'm also a fan of hers, but I, I truly honest to God feel that Alice Johnson holds her own alongside Nancy Thompson. Um, so, and I believe Kristen saw that in her 
and it's one of the reasons why she called her into her dream because she could have called Debbie, she could call Sheila. And I know that the movie was set up to be Alice, though, but I'm just saying, like, Alice, it was set up for Alice to be the person, but it makes sense. So, but, yeah, so I think that the Dream Master should get its flowers, period, because, like I said, it tried to do something different. It tried to elevate the franchise to a whole other level, and it opened up the door for more victims for Freddy because once he got through with his Elm Street thing then he became you know more he became more um, dangerous to the town of Springwood as a whole so um, with that being said uh, I kind of I think the last thing I would say about the Dream Master is that it's I, I, I don't know I, I mean I think I've said everything I could say about the Dream Master um, it it should get a lot more respect and not looked down upon because it's one of the Elm Street sequels, the later Elm Street sequels. Um, so yeah. So Hey everybody, this is Mark again. Um, I just want to tell you guys that this episode was supposed to have been one complete episode to cover the entire Nightmare on Elm Street film franchise but it ran to exactly three hours long and I did a poll on Twitter asking whether or not if anybody would sit down and listen to a three hour long episode of a podcast especially when it's only one person talking now a lot of people said just go ahead and post it and I applaud that I mean I appreciate that I welcome it however a part of me was like asking myself what would I do in terms of would I sit through a three hour long podcast and it's only one person talking now I've done it before, but I just because I've done it before didn't necessarily mean that I actually enjoyed it. So what I did was I went ahead and split this particular episode into two parts. So I'm going to release them on the same day, but just to give people a chance to have a break. And I'm also um, included breaks in both episodes between each movie. So they give somebody maybe want to just come back and be like, okay, well, he left off on this movie and I can just start off this movie. They're, they're, that way you won't be able to be like, okay, I'm going to rewind back. So I'm trying to do little markers and whatnot to let people know that this is break time and whatnot. And, you know, but yeah, so I'm going to release them both on the same day, but just as two episodes. But this is still a part of a trilogy of sorts. So you'll be getting both episodes of the movies and the next episode would be solely about Freddy's nightmares and I think I want to clarify something I didn't want to say that I didn't want to give um, Kristen Parker her flowers I meant to say that I didn't want to take her flowers from her because she deserves her flowers but I hope you enjoyed this episode I hope you come back for the second part of this episode and yeah I will see you guys soon peace